Alrighty. Take your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Daniel's story. Daniel in the lion's den this evening. And before I do so, uh, can we pray once more and ask that God would bless our time and his word this evening? Because tonight we're going to be talking about the solution to the problem that we observed last night, which is sin. And so let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord. I, I thank you personally, God, for what you've done in my life. Lord, my sin was as scarlet, it says in Isaiah. And Lord, you've made it white as snow because of the work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that tonight as we look to your word, you would do a great work in the life of, of students who, who may not know you, God. Lord, I am in, just aware of the reality that there are likely dozens, if not hundreds of students in here out of the thousand that do not know you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, because of that, their eternal destiny is in jeopardy. For others, God, they may know you. And Lord, they may have waned in affection over time for the God that has saved their soul. And so would the reminder of the gospel fuel us, Lord, to love you more deeply and to live for you more boldly. God, I pray for me, even as I open up the word tonight, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit because, Lord, we are dependent upon you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, through your spirit, preach a stronger sermon than any man ever could. We love you, Lord, and we're thankful for this evening. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, so as we come to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is no longer a teenager. He's not a young man. He is, in fact, likely in his 80s. And he has stayed faithful to Yahweh through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, through the reign of Belshazzar in chapter 5. And now he is going to be faithful in chapter 6 with King Darius. The Babylonian Empire has now waned in up to the throne of power is the Medo-Persian Empire. And in spite of the shifting kings, I want you to think about this, in spite of shifting kings and shifting empires, Daniel has remained steadfast to God and he continues to wield influence in a foreign land. Now, um, if you've ever watched a TV show, let's say The Mandalorian, overrated. Okay, so, I'm kidding, okay, I'm kidding, don't sue me, okay. So if you've ever started a TV show and you started episode four, it's hard to understand the story as a whole. You need to watch the pilot episode. The pilot episode is which episode? The first episode. Because if you don't watch the first episode, you're lost in regards to the character development and the storyline that is being developed. Similarly, when we look at the scripture, I want you to understand this. When you think about what is the story of the Bible, when we look at the Bible, we need to understand that whenever we do so, we are to interpret the parts of Scripture in light of the whole, and we are to look at the whole of Scripture in light of the parts, meaning that it's possible for us to jump into a book like Daniel and think it's just an isolated story that's disjointed from the grand narrative of Scripture. There's something that's happening in Daniel that is correlated to the main storyline of the entire scripture. And you need to understand that because 99.9% .9 of your Bible is a footnote of a single verse. 
I want you to remember with me last night that when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered the world. Those who were made to rush into God's presence are now running from God's presence. Those who had found enjoyment in knowing God as their creator are now shaking in terror because of the presence of sin. They are now estranged and enemies of God. But in the tragic account, in page three, on page three of your Bible, there is a glimmer of hope, and it sets the stage for the storyline of the entirety of Scripture. And if you miss this verse, you miss the story. You're watching individual episodes, and you go, who's this? What's happening? Where is all this pointing? Is this a closed story, or is it pointing to something else? God says in Genesis 3, 14, and 15. You can write these verses down. God tells the serpent that had deceived Adam and Eve. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He's saying, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and then someone is coming, and he will bruise you on the head or crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel in the process. Now, you guys watch all these shows that have some sort of prophecy that says what's going to happen. Even in our Marvel movies that we watch, there's prophecies that take place and things that are going to happen. But in Genesis 3.15, there's these ominous words that include mankind's only hope. There is a seed, an offspring of the woman, a deliverer, a savior, a messiah. And once we understand this verse, we understand the rest of the storyline of scripture. Now watch this, because I want you to love the Bible. Because if you're listening to what I say just as a lesson without catching an affection for the truth of the Bible, I'm failing. I want you to love the scripture. And I want you to watch this. What basic truths can be derived about the Messiah from page three of your Bible? Well, three things. Number one, he's going to have a supernatural birth. He will be of the seed of the woman, not of man. Meaning that page three of your Bible rightly predicts a virgin birth. The savior who will crush the serpent and be bruised in the process will be born of a virgin. Number two, he will be a supernatural being. He has a supernatural birth. He will be a supernatural being. Secondly, because he is going to crush Satan, who himself is a supernatural being. Meaning that Genesis 3 implies deity, which means godness to the one who would come and restore Eden. And number three, we see that this person who is coming will be supernatural and yet he will be human. It says he is the seed of the woman meaning that page three of your Bible rightly predicts that the one who's going to come and solve the problem of sin that you and I find ourselves in is God and man. He is a God-man. Now, at the end of Genesis 3, that is all we know. So in one sense, I want you to think about your Old Testament like a massive funnel, wide at the top and progressively narrow towards the bottom, to which the only person that could fulfill all these prophecies is one single man. 
But what Genesis 3 says is that until that person comes, there's going to be increasing hostility and enmity between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Those who are kingdom citizens of God and those who are citizens of this world. There is a staunch opposition between the light and the darkness. And Jesus, or God says this in Genesis 3, you have to understand that the entire storyline of the scripture is that the darkness will hate the light. And until the seed of the woman comes, the whole of human history is a conflict between two parties, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. We're gonna see this reality clearly in Daniel chapter six. The forces of darkness are opposed to one man who lives for the kingdom of light. In Babylon, there is one single individual along with three friends who understands that his kingdom is not ultimately of this world, but is not of Medo-Persia or Babylon, but in heaven. I wanna read Daniel chapter six, verses one through three with you. It says this, it pleased Darius, there's a new king here, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Those are like officials or officers or governors to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Here at the beginning of chapter six, I want you to understand what the Bible says and what your history books tell you. That when the Medo-Persian Empire rose to power, there was a decentralization of authority, meaning that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar had ruled with an iron fist. They were the boss. But Darius wants to break up his responsibilities in a certain way. He wants to elect 120 governors that will basically oversee each individual state. And they were to report to the king, but actually he wanted someone between the governors and him so that he didn't have to do a lot. And so he elected three officials that were going to oversee the entirety of his empire, one of which is Daniel. And then it says that the king becomes so impressed with this guy, Daniel, that he says he's going to put him over everything. Daniel is the prime minister of his second empire. Things have changed over time. There's new technology at this point. There's a new king. There's a new empire. One thing stays the same. Daniel is the cream of the crop. And because of that, the king elevates him to a position of authority. Now, What we see here is that God is continuing to protect his man, Daniel. Because we mentioned this the other night, God will always preserve those who are wholly his as long as he has work for them to do for his kingdom and for his glory. It was the missionary John Patton who said this in his autobiography. He says, I realized that I am immortal till my master's work with me was done. This was true of Daniel. He did not fear death. He feared God, and because he feared God, he feared nothing else in his life. But Daniel is elected to this position of an overseer over the entire empire, and the jealousy and the envy of all these other officials, and you saw it in the film, they begin, it it eats at them because they can't handle that Daniel continues to rise to new levels of prominence. And so their strategy is to destroy Daniel, and in doing so, we are going to observe again what is the underlying story of the Bible, the kingdom of darkness coming after the kingdom 
of light. And I want to read verses four through nine with you, and I want you to see their strategy and the absolute determination of the kingdom of darkness to destroy the light. Look at verse four. It says, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, watch this, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said, O king, Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, Establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. One of the military sayings, if you've ever read anything about the military or tactics, it says one of the greatest things you have to do first and fundamentally is to know your what? Enemy. You need to understand something about these 122 officials. They knew their enemy well. And they knew that one of the only ways that they could get Daniel was by trapping him in his own convictions. They did know Daniel's weak spot. And you know what Daniel's weak spot was? Daniel's weak spot was his devotion to God his love for God. You know where Daniel was most vulnerable? In the depth of his own integrity. There is a subtlety and a genius about evil that we see in chapter six. These men have insight into human nature. They know Darius' nature and they're able to work him and to leverage him to get what they want. They play chess with the king in order to accomplish their plan and their purpose. Every man has his price. But they say of Daniel that Daniel is faithful. Daniel has no price. These officials are going to use Daniel's courage and Darius's weakness, and they're going to use them against each other to destroy the light. Because the kingdom of darkness is doing what the kingdom of darkness does. Absolute focus on squelching out the light. I want you to notice now that they bring these accusations really against a man who was innocent. They knew that there was no real charge against Daniel, so they must be dishonest. They must betray Daniel. They must make up stories and create theories in order that they might do away with him. And Darius is foolish enough to respond to their proposal. He doesn't say, wait a second, I elected 123 officials, but I only see 122. Where is Daniel in whom I've placed my greatest degree of trust? King Darius doesn't say, wait, where is Daniel? The only man Darius could have trusted wasn't even in the room. What's the lesson here, just from the story? 
what we must never underestimate, Satan's kingdom and the strategy that they use, the subtle manipulation of the truth that is employed to get what they want. I want you to notice now the response of Daniel in verse 10. And and I want you to just think with me. Are you an old counselor in the room? Are you a young man or a young woman in the room? I want you to think, Balcony, that you could potentially be in your 70s or your 80s before you face your greatest trial and your greatest temptation. If you're middle age and you think you're just coasting at this point because you've lived for God thus far, I want to just draw to your attention that Daniel started as a man of conviction when he was young, but the greatest test Daniel will face is in his early 80s. And I want you to watch that the man who developed habits of conviction in his youth is going to do exactly what he's been doing the entirety of his life because he's never been put on his heels. He's never relaxed. He's always pursued God. So look with me at Daniel 10, or 610. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And as he had done previously, these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. One of the military adages is to know your enemy, but the other one is to know your, anybody know? Resources. In the moment of danger, Daniel goes to his primary resource, which is the strength and energy and wisdom of God. He didn't have to pray with the window open. I want you to think about this with me. Daniel's life had been governed by godly habits, but he could have went and prayed in his closet. He could have prayed in the bathroom. He could have said something like, wait a second, I can continue to pray, but as long as no one sees me, I won't get in trouble. Why don't I go into my room? I'll shut the door. I'll pretend I'm sleeping. I'll get under the covers. I'll pretend I'm taking a nap. But Daniel says, no, 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 no. I have been praying towards Jerusalem. Why is Daniel praying towards Jerusalem? It's because God had told the prophets previously that if you turn towards Jerusalem as a symbol of my holy temple and pray, I will hear your prayer. And Daniel says, I don't want to just make this a peripheral pocket of my life. This isn't some fringe garment. This is the very cornerstone of who I am. As a young man and as an old man, I am a man of prayer because I must commune with my God. What is Daniel doing What is he doing? Well, I want you to understand something. This is called a chapel. And in a church, we sometimes call a church building a sanctuary, which is a place where you encounter God. And what Daniel is doing is he is keeping a sanctuary with his God. If you were to ask, what is the most important spiritual counsel you could ever give someone? I would, as Dr. Ferguson notes, He says, whatever happens in your life, keep a sanctuary in your soul for Jesus Christ of which no other and no sin will ever be allowed to enter. Daniel had a home in his heart for his holy God that he loved dearly. 
And he wouldn't let a speck of compromise or a speck of dirt infiltrate and irritate and mar the fellowship that he had with God. There was a place that Daniel had preserved in his life that was for no one else save the Lord of glory. That was Daniel's strength as an old man. It was his strength as a young man. There was a communion in his life in which he was bound and there was nothing in heaven or in hell that could destroy the fellowship that he experienced with God. I want you to ask yourself this question for a moment. Have you ever experienced genuine fellowship with God? Where you knew him as a friend, where you loved him dearly, when leaving him in prayer was difficult because you'd rather commune and keep sanctuary with God than be with anybody else. That's Daniel. Daniel, in the midst of great spiritual crisis, doesn't divert his eyes to his circumstances. He keeps his eyes on God. I want to tell you that if you don't have this sanctuary of soul with God in the moment of pressure, you are already a goner. The only reason Daniel could stand with this courageous spine is because he had made it a habit of his life to commune with God on his knees. It's too late when the pressure comes. You need this communion with God before the pressure strikes. And in doing so, Daniel shows us that he doesn't do what he feels like doing. Because if you act in your spiritual life only in accordance with how you feel or what you feel, that is a recipe for spiritual disaster. The culture says, follow your feelings. And God's word says, no, your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And what Daniel models for us is that when his life was in great crisis and when pressure was squeezing him, his life was governed by godly habits and disciplines. He didn't do what he felt. He, do, he did what he needed to do as a habit of his life. Daniel knew that whether or not the lions ate him, that was a secondary matter to whether or not he remained faithful to God. And do you know why? We talked a lot about persecution over the last couple of days. I want you to think with me that when persecution does come, if it does come in a serious nature, what can cause you and give you great boldness is when the one you stand for is a person you know and not a subject you believe in. Because the Christian life is not principles to adhere to. It's a person you fellowship with, that you love with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when someone tells you not to bow down to him any longer, it's viewed in your own life, not as a, that's bad, that's wrong, uh, but a, how could I possibly grieve my God and my Father whom I love? And this is what Daniel had let me read verses 12 through 24. It says, Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not make an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion den? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. 
Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by an agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his place and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and, he, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve, watch this, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. Watch this. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. My Sunday school teacher when I was a kid, her name was Wendy Geppinger. She used to give me a pack of cards every time I memorized a verse, so naturally I loved her basketball cards, TBT. I remember reading this story for the first time and cheering when we got to verse 24, that the people that had accused Daniel were thrown into the pit and before their bodies even hit the ground, they were overpowered and the lions crushed, destroyed, and ate them down to the bone. But now what used to excite me as a kid absolutely terrifies me. Because it's a reminder that there are consequences in our life that could have devastating results. And here in this story, there's something interesting for us. Those who have rejected Yahweh and rejected his prophet are destroyed. I want you to understand one of the ways that Satan works. Satan lies and tells you that there are no consequences for rejecting the truth. But every once in a while, there is a reminder because typically the Psalms say, why did the wicked flourish? When you look at the world around you, it seems that those who do the most unrighteousness are the ones that seem to be doing the most well. But every once in a while, there's a reminder in the scripture that ultimately the wicked are destroyed. These men made accusations to advance and elevate their own life. But Jesus asks a question you must consider. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And what? 
forfeit his soul. This story is not only about the conflict about the powers of darkness and the power of God, but gives us a glimpse into how God ultimately will solve once and for all the problem and power of darkness. I used to have an old Christmas sweater that you would be able to pull, the little strands that came out of it. And there is a thread in this passage where, like an old Christmas sweater, if you pull and pull and pull on it, you will be reminded of events that transpire here but also occur somewhere else. In Daniel 6, there is a man who has a plot against his life. In Daniel 6, there is a man who is innocent, who is condemned to death. In Daniel 6, there is a man who is sent to death by a ruler. In Daniel 6, there is a man who spent time in the depths of a pit with a stone rolled over it. And in Daniel 6, there is, because this man is innocent, a deliverance by God himself. What Daniel experiences here is just a foretaste of what Jesus Christ experiences. For what reason? For the reason that was foreshadowed in Genesis 3, so that when he comes, he might destroy the prince and the powers of darkness. Story of the Bible, I want you to understand this because you can miss the forest for the trees even if you've grown up in the church. You can know the individual scenes but forget what the movie is all about. The story of the Bible is a story about the seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent and the beauty and irony of the gospel. I want you to listen to this. The beauty and the irony of the gospel is that the way God comes to crush the serpent is by crushing his one and only son. That's the story. I wanna consider with you for a few moments an important question. Maybe you've been around the truth so much that you've never really asked this question. And that question is this. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? 2,000 years ago, regardless of what you believe about him, Jesus Christ was taken, Jesus of Nazareth, a real guy at a real point in history, was taken outside of the city walls of Jerusalem, and he was mocked and derided by his own people as Roman centurions slaughtered him on a Roman cross. That is a historical fact. But why did he have to die? That is something only the scripture tells us. And I wanna give you just a few reasons. Number one, the reason Jesus came to die is fundamentally because the Father sent Jesus to die. God the Father sent his one and only son to die. Jesus says in John's gospel, I must do the works of him who sent me. There's a massive misunderstanding of God in our contemporary culture. That is that God is the wrathful judge and Jesus is the cool hipster merciful guy that pleads with God the Father to have mercy on sinners. God's up in heaven going, oh, I hate sin. And Jesus is like, no, dude, they didn't mean it. But I want you to understand something about God. God the Father is the one who has immense love for his image bearers and sends his one and only son so that he might bring lost sinners to himself. 
God is not indifferent or apathetic to the plight of the unbeliever. You have to understand this. Even last night as I was talking about sin and that the consequences of sin are eternal punishment in hell. God is not in heaven going, <laughs> see if I care. Uh, mm, uh, check in on that person. Nah, it doesn't matter. Whatever they do. Ball's in their court. No, God is not an apathetic savior. He is a pleading savior who reconciles people to him because he is by nature a savior. In the Old Testament, Baal is an indifferent false god. So the false priest of Baal and 1 Kings, here's what they do to get the attention of their deity. They cut their body to pieces because they believe that if they were bleeding and tormenting and torturing themselves, then and only then would that prompt the care and attention and compassion of their god. In the Old Testament, there's the god Molech. He doesn't care about you at all. And so he says that your first child, you need to sacrifice in the fires of sacrifice to him. And he doesn't care about you at all. But the God of the Bible, I want you to understand something about the God of the Bible. He's a savior. And because he's a savior, he sent his son to die. But secondly, why did Jesus have to die though? Because God sent him. But secondly, why? Because only in Jesus' death can our sins be forgiven. Last night we talked about sin, and the reality is our sin creates a massive chasm between us and God. I want you to understand that there is not a single sin in your life, or listen to me, in my life. I have so much sin in my life. There isn't a single sin in your life or in my life that God will ever, ever go, no big. He never, ever has dismissed a single sin. He has never turned a blind eye. It is quite the opposite. God is a, a righteous judge, and I want you to understand this, who has kept an exact record of every sin you have ever committed either by commission, which means you're committing sin, or by omission, meaning you're not doing what you should be doing. And this includes not just the explicitly sinful deeds, but it's a constant failure to live in light of the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your, anybody know? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every time we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are breaking the greatest commandment. Now, in order for our sins to be forgiven, our sins need to be removed. Our sins must be wiped out by God. This is the very thrust of the gospel, that you have sin that needs to be forgiven by God, past sin, present sin, even your future sin, this is what Peter preaches in his opening sermon in Acts 2. He says, repent and be baptized, every single one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. Paul preaches in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption, comma, through his blood. What? The forgiveness of our sins. Question for you, friend. Are your sins as scarlet? Is there a thick black cloud of sin hanging over your life? Is your sin a great burden upon your soul? Well, Jesus died in order that he could make you as white as snow. 
that he might take the crippling load of your sin. And it says in Psalm 103 that he might remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is the east from the west? You take two arrows, you shoot them in opposite directions, and you fling them into infinity. The greatest thing to ever dwell upon is that God can remove your sin. Now, if you desire forgiveness, the only one who can grant it to you is the offended party. Our culture says things like you need to forgive yourself. But when it comes to your sin, your greatest problem is not to forgive yourself. It's for God to forgive you. And so Colossians 1.14 says this, in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. If you ever get lost on what it means to be redeemed, it means here, Paul says it over and over again, that the redemption that God speaks of is the forgiveness of our sins. And if your sins have been forgiven, you can sing with the psalmist, how blessed, how happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. And third and finally, the reason that Jesus died is not just to forgive us our sins, but I want you to watch this, but to reconcile us to God. Meaning that God does not just go gavel bang, okay, innocent, dismissed. The judge of the earth comes down from the bench and he grabs you and adopts you as a son and a daughter. To reconcile means that you have a wrecked relationship with God and he's not just interested in clearing your name, he's interested in adopting you into his family. How can God, who is a righteous judge, pardon sin? I want you to think with me about this another way. I want you to pretend that a man who committed the most heinous, wicked, detestable crime you could think of, maybe he's a terrorist, a murderer, a thief, an adulterer, a liar. If that man goes to the judge and pleads for mercy and the judge grants that man mercy, what does it tell you about the judge? That he's not a just judge at all your response would be indignation. How dare that judge? His job is to uphold the law, not to give mercy to lawbreakers. But Romans 3 says, of every single one of us in here, there is no one righteous, not even one. So the question is, then how can a dead sinner, a thieving, proud, unrighteous, wicked enemy of God be reconciled with the just judge of the earth. Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This verse is well known, but I want you to understand that these 15 Greek words contain almost the entirety of the gospel. Maybe you're so, uh, uh, maybe just acquainted and familiar with the word, the gospel, that you don't even understand what it means. So listen, if you've heard the term the gospel your entire life, and you're not even sure if you could communicate it or even really understand it, I want you to lean in for just a few moments. The text says that he, that's God, made him who knew no sin, who's that? Jesus. To be sin on our behalf. What does it mean that Jesus became sin on our behalf? Well, to answer that question, I want you to think that in John, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus prays, Father, if possible, let this, what? 
He says, let this what pass from me? Cup. I want you to think with me. Jesus, in final moments of his time here on earth, says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your be done. What is the cup that Jesus is referring to? If you don't understand this, you don't understand why Jesus had to die. The cup that Jesus is referring to when he says, Father, let this cup pass, is the full measure of the wrath of God towards sin. The Old Testament system, I want you to understand, maybe you're new to the church and and that's great. I want you to understand that for Old Testament history, there's the sacrificial system that was implemented. For thousands of years, there's a reminder that God doesn't simply dismiss sin. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the people of God, for thousands of years, would have to sacrifice animals because God was holy. He's just. But in sacrificing an animal, God had implemented a system by which a substitute, someone who is innocent, would bear the penalty of their sin so that God can still have relationships with a sinner. God is holy. He can't just tolerate sin. He must punish it. So God implemented a system where he would pour out his wrath on a substitute and the sinner would live. But there was never a termination of that sacrificial system because every single sacrifice in the Old Testament that they practiced for thousands of years was just a foretaste that one day there will be a final, perfect sacrifice that would once and for all remove the wrath of God towards all those who would believe in him. When we talk about the cross, and I've been here a number of times, obviously, I I worked here for years, and I've heard so many people preach on the cross, and I need you to understand this. You can go into great details about the pain that Jesus endured on the cross. The whips, the thorns that pierced his skull, the beatings, the nails, But the greatest pain of the cross was that on the cross, God treated Jesus Christ as if he had lived every ounce of sin for every single person who would ever believe for all time. He declared Jesus legally guilty. And we sing a song that even has a confusing lyric at times. I love it. How deep the Father's love. We sing... It says the father turns his face away. But I want you to understand that God didn't turn his face away when Jesus was dying. It says the father was pleased to crush him. Because on the cross, God viewed Jesus as if he had lived every ounce of adultery, pornography, murder, every ounce of sin in your life, declared him legally guilty, and then poured out the full measure of his wrath on his one and only son. And Jesus drank that cup of wrath down to the dregs. Every single last drop of the wrath of God towards you in your sin. And that's why Jesus had to die. I find great comfort in this reality that because Johnny Artavanus, a sinner, has placed his faith in Jesus Christ, God has not poured out 99% of his wrath on Jesus and 1% still remains on me. 
There is not a single ounce of wrath left that God has towards my sin because on the cross, Jesus paid it all. It says this in Galatians 3, Christ became a curse for us. Isaiah 53, 700 years before our Savior came. I want you to, you know, I read this at times when I'm witnessing with Jewish people. I ask them, who do you think this is about? And here is Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, and the punishment for our peace fell upon him. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You need to understand something about God. God hates sin. He abhors sin, and he will not punish 80, 90, 99% of it, but every single ounce of sin. And here's what the gospel is. A real event in real history, Jesus Christ died on the cross, as a public spectacle of what? Romans 3.25 tells us, God displayed Jesus publicly as the big word, but you do math with letters in it, so I think you can understand this. God displayed Jesus publicly as the propitiation. Everyone say propitiation on three. One, two, three. You need to understand this word because without this word, you have zero hope. God displayed Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. What does it mean that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins? It means this, friend. It means he is the full satisfaction of the wrath of God. He bore our sin. And this was a public matter. God's wrath towards sin isn't private. It's not secret. God's wrath is clearly seen in the most memorable event in human history. But just as his justice and his wrath are seen there in a memorable way, I want you to understand, the Bible says that God is holy. It says that he's just, and because he's just, he exercises wrath. But the Bible says also that God is what? He's love. Do you know, friend, that God loves you? How do I know God loves me? will look no further than the pulpit of Calvary where God preaches the strongest sermon of all time as the one who created the universe hangs naked on a tree, murdered by the people he made in his own image. This is why the Puritans used to say that on the cross, God's mercy and love and his justice kiss. There we see the demonstration most clearly. If you ever doubt the love of God, you need to understand what Jesus did for you was not just receive pain. He bore the punishment for your sin. And it says in Ephesians, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And this means, I I need you to understand this. It means that if you're a Christian, God didn't just die for the world. He didn't, Jesus didn't just die for everyone. He died for those individually who would be saved, meaning that if you're a Christian young lady, if you're a Christian young man, Jesus knew your name on the cross. And he had your sin in mind on the cross. That's why Augustine used to say that he died for us as if there were only one of us. 
mean that God's love and God's sacrifice isn't divided by the billions of those who would presumably place their faith and trust in him. God's love is infinite. Therefore, his love towards you is infinite and not rationed off across all of those who would believe. But I need to ask you a question. If all we had in the gospel was the removal of our sin, could we ever stand before a holy God? What's the answer? You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, what's the gospel? Jesus forgives me of my sin. Well, I want you to think, if all you had in the gospel was that Jesus forgives your sin, would you ever be able to stand before a holy God? The answer is a million times no. Because it's not the innocent who are welcomed into a holy God's kingdom. It's the holy. Hebrews says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. So we must not only ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? You must ask the question, why did Jesus have to live? If all he had to do was come and die for us, why didn't he drop down on a Friday morning, die for us Friday night, be back up in glory on Sunday, and the angels are clapping? No, Jesus came and he lived. Why did he live? So that he would be tempted in every way we are, yet without what? Sin. Jesus not only had to die for you, friend, he had to live for you. He had to live the life you could never live so that he could die the death you could never die. He had to live a righteous life. And that's why Paul concludes 2 Corinthians 5 by saying this, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, that's a purpose clause in the Bible, big thing coming, so that what, Paul? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is the gospel. Understand this. And if you've missed everything this week, don't miss this. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your life so that if you believe in him, God can now view you as if you had lived the righteous life of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Because God not only takes your sin in the gospel, he clothes you with the righteousness of God in Christ. This is why Jesus lived, and this is why he died. Do you grasp this? You don't have an ounce of righteousness to offer to God. Not a single ounce. There will be no one in heaven who thinks they deserve to be there. Zero. There will be zero people showing up with their inner lawyer trying to testify to what they did or didn't do. There will be no people proclaiming their own amount of dignity. The only people in heaven are those who say, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. Right now, God views you as righteous if you're a Christian, not because of the righteousness you produce, but because of the righteousness you possess because of faith in Christ. Now, how can this reconciliation be yours? How can my sins be forgiven? How can I receive the righteousness of God so that Jesus no longer sees me in my sin and my shame? This is the question I asked. After growing up in the church, I don't think I ever got it. How can Jesus give me his righteousness? Well, the answer is simple. And you know it so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? 
everlasting life. To believe in Jesus is not to affirm the facts. It's to give him your entire life, friend. Now, how do I know that Jesus' death truly satisfies God's wrath? And we sing this, and you can't give the gospel without giving this. You understand that? How do I know that Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the full measure of God's wrath towards my sin? How do you know that? What's the answer? It's this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the final proof that God's justice was satisfied by Jesus and that the grave could not hold him. This is why we sing the lyrics. And Christ Alone is one of my favorite songs. And years ago, they wanted to change the lyrics. One of the denominations in the church today wanted to change the lyrics from this. They wanted it to say, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. That's what they wanted it to say. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Here's what the lyrics actually say. It says, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The resurrection is the proof that there is no more enmity between me and God because he's poured out his punishment for my sin on his son. And this is why the hymn continues. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And watch this. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Friend, it's not worth gaining the whole world if you lose your soul. Do you know Jesus Christ is your savior? Are you still in bondage to your sin? Bow your heads with me. God, we acknowledge, Lord, that we are sinners, God, and we acknowledge that you are a holy God who punishes sin and who hates sin, but we also acknowledge, God, that Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive with him. God, I'm just fearful that there are many in here that don't know you, and because of their sin, they stand in opposition to God. They are like Nebuchadnezzar, who is proud and we read yesterday, God, that you are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Lord, I also acknowledge that there are many in here who might, through your spirit, be humbled by the reality of their sin, and they know they need a savior. And so, God, I wanna speak to them for just a moment. Now, if you've recognized throughout the course of the week, through the word of God and through the spirit of God, and even in conversations with the people of God, that you need a savior and you would like to give your life to Jesus Christ tonight, I want to tell you, don't wait another day. Your eternal soul is too precious, and Jesus stands at the door and knocks. If you know you need a Savior tonight, and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, can you look up at me for just a moment? Everyone else, keep your eyes closed for a moment. If you know you need a Savior, I want you to look at me, and I want to talk to you directly for just 
a moment. What the Bible says is that when you give your life to Christ, it means that you not just believe in a set of facts, but you're surrendering your life to him completely. It means that your life is no longer your own and that you belong wholly and solely to the God who made you and loved you and bought you with his precious blood. It means that you are going to turn from your sin and turn towards Jesus Christ. And you cannot turn from anything apart from his power and his strength. It means you no longer see your life as my way or the highway, but as Daniel, who viewed his life as it belonged to God. You need a savior tonight, friend. And if you even find yourself wrestling, I ask you the question that Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And so if you're ready to give your life to Christ, I wanna pray for you with just, for just a moment. God, I thank you for those students tonight that wanna signify in their heart that they wanna surrender their life to you. And it's not because standing or praying a prayer at Hume Lake is what saves someone. Jesus Christ saves someone. But this act of even just signifying that we wanna devote our life to you, we wanna turn from our sin, we want to, as Romans 10, 9 says, confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you have raised Jesus from the dead, then we shall be saved. And so God, I thank you for that reality. And I pray that for people in here that do not know you, that you would crush their pride, break them so that they find the shelter they need in Jesus Christ. And for those who have decided to give their life to Christ, God, would you use them for your kingdom and for your glory? Would you raise them up to be men and women like Daniel? We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Now listen here, no clap for a second. Here's what the Bible, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Christian faith is a public faith, meaning that you cannot be a man like Daniel and claim to follow God in your closet and not live for God in this world. So if you tonight wanted and, and, and looked at me and said, I wanna give my life to Jesus, in a moment I'm gonna ask you to stand and here's what it's gonna do for those around us. It's gonna encourage us that God is in the business of saving sinners. And for you it's going to mean this, I am going to stand for God in a world that is bowing down to idols. And if you can't stand for God here at Hume Lake, you will not be able to stand for God in a world that is increasingly hostile towards him. So in a moment, I wanna ask you to stand if you've given your life to Christ tonight. Would you do so on the count of three? One, two, three. Would you stand with me? Amen? Amen. Hey, well, stay standing. And would everyone stand and listen here. Luke 15 says that when one sinner gives their life to Christ, there is much rejoicing in heaven because God is a God of great joy who loves saving sinners. So let's respond in joy and celebrate what he's done tonight.